for our sermon text today, then you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the fruit, uh, sorry, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for giving us your word. We praise you indeed as the God of all light that is the one who grants us knowledge. We pray that you would enlighten our eyes to see indeed ourselves, our sins, your grace. We pray that you would instruct us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thus far in Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2, we saw the goodness of God displayed in his creation, in his very good creation. He made all things out of nothing in the space of six days, and all very good. He made man and woman uh, fit for each other, placed them in the Garden of Eden, forbid one tree, the fruit of one tree, gave them all the rest, and a great abundance of fruit and food, and he gave them dominion over the creatures, he gave them each other, he could have been more stingy, he could have 
held back. He didn't have to give them all of these things, but it was, according to his character, to be generous, to be good. And he indeed showed this mercy to them. He made a covenant of life with them and even placed the tree of life there in the garden to symbolize that life that he would give them. But we come to a very different part of the story, a very different thing in this chapter. Today we find uh, how we got to the place that we are today. Today, uh, we live in a very different world than the Garden of Eden. We can lose sight of the blessings that in fact remain uh, because of the overwhelming evils that surround us. There is pain and suffering and sorrow and death. There is injustice and wickedness and cruelty and enmity and insolence. We also experience fear and shame and guilt, which justly result from our sins. These things were not known to Adam and Eve as they were originally created. And so the question naturally arises, how did things get so bad? What went wrong? That's the main question that I'm going to be looking at today. How did things get so bad and how Genesis chapter 3 informs us and answers that question? Well, we could think of a number of related questions. You know, where does sin and evil come from? Is there such a thing as sin and evil, or or is this just the way the world works? Has it always been this way? That seems to be the uh, answer that evolution would give, that struggle and strife and death and fear is the way the world came about. Uh, Others might uh, attribute it to other things. Uh, The Buddhists might attribute it to a desire for existence and to possess something of one's own, and that causes suffering, and we need to get rid of that and be enlightened to have salvation. It's really a problem of ignorance, and so the solution is knowledge. But that is not the way Scripture informs us of how the world went wrong. God, in fact, created all things good. He brought things into existence, and things were very good. Instead, the problem began with rebellion. The problem began with disobedience. It was not natural. It was an invasion of a good creation. Sin is folly. Sin is not natural. Sin is uh, unexplainable. It, It has no right to be there, and yet it is now all around us. And as with the gospel of Christ, this account of man's fall is not merely an example. Just as Jesus doesn't just show us how to be good, uh, so Adam and Eve don't just show us how to be bad. They don't just warn us, don't be like them, although both Christ and Adam are examples. Adam shows us here what not to do, and Christ indeed shows us how to live, but it's more than that. Just as Jesus Christ accomplished something for you, Jesus did something with with effects, with consequences for your salvation. So what Adam and Eve did here in the garden thousands of years ago would have consequences, would have an impact on the way the world is today. That's how Genesis presents it. That's how the New Testament does as well. And so let's begin to answer this question. How did things get so bad? First, let's look at the first five verses 
and the temptation. We are introduced to a crafty serpent, the serpent who is more crafty than any other beast of the field. Crafty here is a word that can mean something good and can mean something bad. You can be wise in a good way or, or crafty in a malicious way. Um, but it does maybe alert us that we shouldn't take the words, the serpents, at face value. A little warning here. There is a crafty serpent. He was a creature of God, so we know that he was good originally, like all other creatures of God. But he was a creature of God who rebelled against him, who used his God-given gifts to oppose him. This is a figure, uh, the serpent, uh, is later identified with the devil. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it will describe the devil as that ancient serpent. Or Jesus will describe him as a murderer and a liar from the beginning. One who lied and who brought mankind into death from the beginning. Now, we don't know exactly the relation of the devil and the serpent, you know, but it seems that the devil possessed this serpent in such a way that he could be called the serpent. And we don't know if this was the devil's first outward act of rebellion or not. You know, John Milton in his poem would portray this vast angelic rebellion in heaven and being cast down to Hades, and then the devil comes back up to the garden to tempt mankind out of envy. But it could have been just as easily that this was how the devil fell out of envy at Adam and Eve and committed this act of treason by uh, tempting Adam and Eve. In any case, what we find here in his words is treason. What we find here in these words is rebellion. At one point or another, the devil rebelled against his maker and sinned. And he indeed, as Jesus said, became a liar and a murderer. And his deceptive craftiness is apparent as soon as he speaks. He finds God's words surprising or incredible. Did God actually say Can he be so uh, stingy as to say that you can't eat any of the trees at the garden? But not only does he uh, find this incredible, he is also twisting God's words. He is also being deceptive because God did not, in fact, say that they couldn't eat any tree of the garden. It's a a fallacy here. It's uh, deceptive. Perhaps he makes this stupendous claim that God had forbidden all the trees so that his next thing that he says is going to sound more moderate and sound more reasonable. In any case, he is off to a rather subtle and deceptive start. The woman at first seems to do well. She responds with God's word. She responds, uh, no, that is not correct. God did not forbid all the trees of the garden. Uh, But he said of this one tree in the midst of the garden, you shouldn't uh, eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. In retrospect, we might say that she might have opened herself up to attack by not emphasizing God's goodness. She leaves out the word every, every tree of the garden. Um, That she might have not emphasized God's threat instead of saying, you surely die, you shall surely die, she says, lest you die. Um, But again, that's maybe more so in retrospect. She does understand that she ought not to eat of that tree. But the serpent then directly challenges the goodness of God's command and the truth of his threat. He does not, in fact, deny that, Jesus, that, that God had given this command, but he 
now tells Eve that command is uh, just to prevent you from getting something good. And that threat is an empty threat. You shall not surely die. He claims that God has made an idle threat to withhold something good and powerful. You could be like God. He is holding something back from you. You ought to, he doesn't actually say you ought to do it, but that is what he subtly and craftily implies. Did the serpent tell the woman to eat from the tree? Not directly, but his clear intent was to convince the woman to eat the forbidden fruit and rebel against God. He tempted her with deceptive lies. In particular, he sought to undermine the woman's belief in God's goodness, to make the sin look promising, and to make God and his law seem oppressive, to give her a different worldview, a different way to look at things that would undermine her resistance to temptation. And so these first five verses give us our initial answer, a partial answer to that question, how did things get so bad? Well, first, the ancient serpent tempted Eve, our mother, and thus temptation entered into the world. Notice the, from this, this is the way that the devil works. The devil has not changed. As Jesus said, he's been a liar and murderer from the beginning, <clears throat> and he still is. He continues to lead people into death through deceptive lies. He continues to present sin in deceptive ways. As Jesus said, here's the full quotation I've been referring to. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there was no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So beware his destructive lies. Beware his deceptive temptations. He and his forces, including the fallen world that has now followed in his footsteps, will try to convince you to doubt God's goodness, to question the wisdom and justice of his commands, uh, to motivate you to put yourself in charge, to become the judge of God himself. Genesis 1 and 2 has been presenting the goodness of God, the generosity of God, the, the, the power of God, and how he is raised up Adam and Eve literally from the dust to become vice-regents, to be the image of God. And yet the devil will try to tear down all of that truth to make God look like he is not the good and generous God he is, to make you discontent. Instead, sin then is presented as a good thing, as a liberating thing, as an empowering thing. But sin continues to be... uh, evil. This promise is a mirage. It is an illusion. It is a foolish choice that leads to death. And so what ought you to do? Arm yourself against the devil and his temptations. Arm yourself with the shield of faith, faith in the goodness of God, faith in the faithfulness of God. Arm yourself with the word of God, that sword of the spirit. Do not put down your sword. Exercise faith in God by receiving his words and acting upon his words, embracing his promises, obeying his commands, trembling at his threatenings. Every piece of God's word that you receive, receive it with faith and act accordingly. Do not think that you know better than God. And don't think you know God's mind better than his word does 
Well, sure, God said that, but I know he really wants me to do this. Who are you to think that? God is the one who has revealed his mind to us. It's a good thing when you understand his commands. It's good to understand the character of God. But even when you don't understand his reasons, even if you don't know why he has forbidden something, you must trust him. That is where uh, faith also is exercised. And to submit to his authority, because he is in authority, not just because what he says is good, although what he says is good, and you should trust him on that, even when you don't understand. For who are you to judge the Lord? And do not forget all his benefits, the gracious blessings he shed upon you as a creature, and now you too as a redeemed rebel. And yet, even though our first parents should have dismissed such blasphemous claims and held such ungrateful treason in contempt, who are you, serpent, to speak against our Creator, sending the serpent packing from the garden of the Lord? They did not. That's not how they responded to temptation. They could have resisted temptation. They could have resisted his lies, and the world would have continued in blessing. But they did not. You and I became traitors with them, and we have continued to succumb to temptation. The devil tempted the woman and became the deceiver of the whole world. So humble yourselves before the Lord, for I've followed for having followed such a scoundrel, for having listened to his lies, for having followed in his footsteps, for having listened to his lies rather than your Lord's good and wise words. So first, how did the world go wrong? The temptation was brought to humanity, to our mother, by the ancient serpent. But as I've just said, that alone does not explain it. We have to go on then to their response, which we find in verse 6. Verse 6 says, so when, the women, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the sin. First we see the temptation, and now we see the sin. In response to the devil's temptation, the woman sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And like sin in general, this sin proceeded from the heart. This is a mystery to us in some ways, for they were created good. They were not like us with sinful desires there naturally. And yet, she willed to sin. And what sinful desires were manifested by her act? Verse 6 indicates that there was covetousness and there was pride. She desired that which was forbidden. That's covetousness. You know, thou shalt not covet. Uh, We should not uh, desire and seek to take what is forbidden to us. You know, uh, to have our desires limited by God's word and conditioned upon God's word. And yet she desired and then acted on that to take that which was forbidden. She had a natural desire for food, which was good. She had a natural desire for beauty, which was good. But these were perverted into lust as she set aside the limits of God's law. She could have directed them to all the other trees in the garden to delight in their beauty, to delight in the goodness of that food. 
but deceived by the devil's lies. She sought to become like God, to seize his power, and to become the one to know good and evil like God, to determine right from wrong for herself, and to seek wisdom and power in rebellion. Is that the way to seek wisdom and power? By rebelling against God? No, but that's the choice she made. And then she compounded her sin by giving the fruit to Adam. Well, then Adam sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. And unlike his wife, he was not deceived. Uh, That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. She was deceived, but he was not deceived, and yet he sinned. Genesis 3 later is going to say that he listened to the voice of his wife and did eat. He listened to the voice of his wife and followed that voice, even though he knew God's command. He knew better. He disregarded God's voice, and he ate of the fruit. He rejected God's authority. He rebelled. He broke the covenant that was made with him and with all humanity in him. And so how did things get so bad? Our second answer here is that our, things got so bad by our first parents sinning against God by eating the forbidden fruit. What is sin? I've been using the word already. Sin, as you can see here, is the violation of God's law, the violation of God's command. As the Apostle John wrote, sin is lawlessness. It is any lack of conformity to God's law, and it's any transgression of God's law. It is a perfect standard which we ought to be in conformity to, but when we don't do the things we should do or we do the things we shouldn't do, this is sin. And as God had warned, the wages of sin is death. And by this sin, man rebelled against his Maker, his covenant Lord. He forfeited the promises of the covenant, the blessing of life, of eternal life, and he became liable to the curse of death. Notice in the sin of Eve how error and deception then opened the door to covetousness and pride. It's important to resist false teachings. False teachings uh, can be destructive. They don't just mess up your mind. They can also lead you into rebellion. Eve listened to the falsehood, the false teaching of the devil, and this led her to then uh, commit sin. It's important to resist false teaching, to reject the propaganda of infidelity, and to fortify yourself with biblical truth so that your faith and your devotion to God may be strengthened and not weakened. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, drawing from this passage, he says to the Corinthians, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He wanted him, he wanted them, he wanted all the saints, he wanted you to be pure and devoted to Christ as your one Lord, as the, the husband of his church. And yet he was aware that there were false teachers out there who would seek to lead his people astray from this pure devotion. But then also learn from Adam's sin too. Notice in Adam's sin how sin can occur even without deception. You may have friends or you may have relatives who are deceived, who blindly indulge in sin and then who pressure you to sin as well. But you know better. But that will still prove a temptation to you. 
you must listen to God rather than them in that case. No matter how dear they are to you, no matter how much you love and respect them, when they pressure you to sin, you must resist and not listen to their voice. As Deuteronomy 13 says, if, if your brother, or the son of your mother, or, the son of, or, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. Or as Jesus told his disciples, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You ought to love your father and mother and your children, but not more than Christ. If they tell you to sin, they might tug on your heartstrings, but you must resist that sin and be true to your maker and not fall into the fault of Adam. And so you ought not to sin. You know that, right? You already know. I didn't have to tell you that you ought not to sin. But you have sinned. And why have you sinned? Why does sin come so naturally to mankind? Because all mankind participated in the sin of Adam. His sin was not merely the sin of an individual, but he, it was the sin of mankind's root and the sin of mankind's representative. The covenant had been made with him, uh, but we were all participants in that covenant. It was made with mankind through Adam, by being made with Adam. He was both the source of mankind, you know, even Eve came from him, and all their descendants came from him. But not only was he the source of mankind, he was also the covenantal head of all mankind, the one in whom this covenant was made. And so that's why in Romans 5, when you get to the New Testament, Paul can make such a comparison between Adam and Christ. Christ also is a covenant head of his people. Uh, Christ also is united to his people. And Christ gives us imputed righteousness. And Christ gives us regeneration so that we also on the inside might become righteous. Well, with Adam, like Christ, except the opposite, he gave us imputed guilt. And through Adam, we have a corrupt nature. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Or later, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. When Adam sinned, he became guilty himself. He lost his original righteousness that he was created in, and his nature became corrupted by that sin. And then because of mankind's connection with him, his guilt was imputed to all his natural descendants, and his sinful nature was passed on to them as well. And so we are born in a state of guilt and corruption. So David could confess in Psalm 51, in his, his prayer of confession of his sins, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now from his conception... He had original sin. He was born as a sinner. He was conceived as a sinner. Or as Paul taught in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's why Solomon discovered that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. So, 
in Adam's case, Adam was good, then he sinned, and then he became a sinner. So that now all are by nature sinners, and therefore sin. And so how did this world get so bad? Because our first parents rebelled against God, and we in Adam. The third part to this, then, is the result of sin. How sin, therefore, brought death. How sin, therefore, brought calamity upon us. Verses 7 through 13. I know I read them already, but let me read them again because it's been a few minutes. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In verse 7, at the beginning of this, we find that their eyes were opened. The serpent was half right. Their eyes were opened. They did have a new knowledge, but it was not a good knowledge. It did not make them like God in a good way. Their eyes were opened, and they became aware of their nakedness and their experience of shame. Well, that wasn't what they were expecting. Their eyes were opened. They realized that they were naked, and they attempted to cover themselves up uh, with fig leaves. Uh, Fig leaves are relatively large, but it's rather... uh, It says they made themselves loincloths with them, and that word can also just mean belt. Uh, Obviously, they didn't cover themselves very much. They tried by sewing these leaves together. Then in verses 8 through 11, they hid from the presence of the Lord. As the Lord God came through the garden, walked in the garden, it seems to be, from the way it's portrayed here, something regular, a certain time of day. And yet, as they heard the sound of him coming, they fled among the trees of the garden to hide from the presence of the Lord. Their communion with God had been shattered and broken. Verses 12 through 13 then describe how, as the Lord God summons them before him, how they seek to avoid the responsibility by shifting their blame to others. Even God himself, the woman whom you gave to be with me, harmony became broken by sin. So how did things get so bad? Well, our first parents immediately experienced the consequences of sin, such as guilt, shame, condemnation, and alienation from God. And so, behold here the misery of the estate in which two men fell. As lawbreaker, as covenant breaker, mankind is under a sentence of condemnation unto death. Mankind is also defiled by sin, disgraced and polluted, stained. And so, due to this, what I would call objective guilt and shame, you know, not, not just the experience and the feeling of it, but he is guilty before the law, that he has done something, in fact, shameful. 
Due to this objective guilt and shame, mankind therefore has lost communion with the Holy One, with God. And this, due to this objective guilt and shame and condemnation, uh, we have subjective guilt and shame and fear. We have experience of guilt. We feel guilty. We feel shameful. We have fear, uh, a kind of fear that causes a person to run from God or to be at enmity with God. And so rather than repenting, rather than coming to God and saying, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner, please have mercy, mankind hides from God. Mankind fears and runs away from God. Mankind becomes hostile to God, having joined the serpent in his foolish rebellion. Rather than having enmity with the serpents, they have now enmity with their maker. And not only is the relation of God to man broken, but the relation between humans is broken. They now accuse one another or the serpent that they were put in charge of. A factor that's going to become more evident in the next chapter. What comes in Genesis 4? Cain kills his brother. And so see how sin inverts and distorts and destroys what God has created. In the created order, under God was the man. Under the man was his wife. And under both man and woman were the beasts. But now the beast had led astray the woman. The woman had led astray the man. Both of them had rebelled against God. And now God needs to become a judge to his creation. Man who is to serve God and to care for his wife subtly blames God and his wife. The woman who is to be a helper for the man and a ruler of the beasts led the man astray and blamed the beast. Where there had been unity and harmony There was now betrayal and bitterness and strife. And as the pitiful fig leaves symbolized, they were not able to fix the problem on their own. Man is not able to reverse the consequences of sin. It may be of some temporary benefit to you and I uh, that sinful man tries to restrain himself and covers his shame uh, and is not as bad as he possibly could be. But all man's efforts are useless to save himself. The wrath of God abides on him, and you cannot atone for your rebellion. You cannot escape judgment. You cannot hide from God. Adam and Eve tried, but they couldn't. The judge will find you. And neither can you begin again to submit to God's law. Even if you could do away with the things you've already done, Man is not able to bring him back into that original conformity to God's law by your own power, as it is written in Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Adam and Eve, trembling among the trees with fig leaf loincloths, hiding from the judgment of God, is the position that all mankind finds themselves before the gospel is proclaimed and believed. That is where God finds us when he extends his grace to us. So we find that mankind is in need of salvation. Sinners need a savior. Man had fallen into a dry well, 
and he is unable to climb out of the dry well. And in fact, man continues to dig deeper into that dry well. He needs someone with a rope to come down the well to grab him and to pull him out. Men and women need a savior. Men need a savior. Women need a savior. Even the youngest child needs a savior. We are all in need of the salvation of God, for we have all fallen into sin. We all partake in the sin and guilt of Adam and the miseries that accompany it. So therefore, we all need the salvation of God. And so let's put these all together. How did things get so bad? Our first parents succumbed to temptation and sinned against God. And all mankind sinned in Adam and fell with him into a state of sin and misery. So having fallen in this way, your only hope is in the grace and the goodness of God. God will speak of this in the next passage. In verses 14 and 15, 15 in particular, we're going to find the beginning of the covenant of grace. Even before he deals out the sentence of death, he's going to proclaim his purpose to redeem mankind by a redeemer. Salvation will come for mankind And he has now indeed sent his son to redeem us by his death, to rise as a second Adam, as a new beginning for humanity, to restore life and blessing to those who receive and rest upon him. So let us give thanks to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come to save us from our sins as the last Adam to bring life instead of death. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for having compassion upon us, that though we ourselves, according to our own free will and the uh, choice that we were presented in the garden, have rebelled against you and have continued to rebel, uh, but for your grace, we would have continued to go our way. We pray that you would indeed uh, continue the work of sanctification in our lives, that you would bring to saving faith those who are without it, that you would extend this gospel throughout the earth, that you would have mercy upon this lost race of Adam. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.